Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. How's everybody doing today? <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I, I just love this. My name's Jared. Um, for those of you who maybe came in a little bit later, um, like two minutes ago, I guess. I don't know. But uh, I'm the pastor here, and it is, this is probably my favorite time. This is what I love to do in life. I love to, to teach God's Word, and I'm excited about today's message. We have been, uh, all throughout the month, have been exploring uh, the topics of genders and romantic relationships and, and sexuality through the lens of what does God think about it in this uh, series that we're in called Undressed. What uh, we have been doing is the first week we talked about genders and how God created men and women and how we're really meant to be um, complementary to each other, right? Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, my my beautiful wife, Heather, talked about who should be leading in a relationship. And in our world, uh, in our normal ways of thinking in our culture, there's a thinking that usually one gender or one sex needs to be a leader in a relationship or perhaps that both lead equally or whatever. But the reality is that God's word teaches that Jesus is to be at the center of our relationships. And when he leads, that it actually teaches both of us to be uh, giving submission and authority to each other. So it works out perfectly. Last week, we were excited. We had a visitor. We took a break, and we had our breakfast club. We had uh, Scott Sober and his beautiful wife, Dawn, and their children here uh, visiting with us, and that was exciting. But this week, we are back on track with Undressed, and this week, we're talking about a topic that is pretty taboo in a lot of churches, not at all in our world. We're calling this message, What's Behind Closed Doors? Uh, I would ask you, how would you describe the world that we live in, the time period that we live in? Uh, let me give you maybe an explanation of what I mean by that. So after World War II, there was uh, a lot of people would say that was the age of anxiety, okay? So after World War II, there was just sort of an unrest in, in our nation. And then after that was what would be considered the age of melancholy. Uh, and then more recently, with all the technological innovations, it's become known as the computer age, right? And the information age. These are all popular phrases that we've heard. Now, if we're going to go ahead and define an era by what people have most on their minds, I would contest that perhaps the most accurate description of our time right now is the age of sex, the age of sex. And I I say that, and now there are other things certainly that are on people's minds, but the reason I think this is because there is an incessant uh, stimulation that we see all over our world by the media, sex-saturated entertainment, sex-saturated everywhere you go. I can't go to the grocery store without seeing, you know, like images on magazines uh, in the checkout line, right? You turn on the television. Uh, it's even in like my children's TV shows on the Disney Channel and Nickelodeon. There's just overt sexuality built into uh, you know, our society, right? It's saturated everywhere we go. In fact, so much so that even objects that have no inherent sexuality in them, we call them sexy, right? So things like my car, So, oh man, I just bought this new car, like, isn't it sexy, right? There's no sexuality to a vehicle yet. What do we call it? We call it sexy. The same thing we do as well with with computers. Like you bought this high-tech, high-end computer, you go, oh man, it runs, it's so sexy, right? Okay? I even think things like like shampoo. Like you go on, you watch on the television, and then they attribute sexuality to things that have absolutely no sexuality. But sex is everywhere. 
And the thing is, is that there are so many competing views, so many competing opinions that it's difficult for us to really know what's right and wrong because all over we're told things from very different points of view everywhere we go. And it can be difficult for us to know how to behave and how to act, but even more so, it's difficult for us to know how we should raise our children. For those of us who have parents, how do we engage in that? How do we talk to them about it? How do we help them know what is right and what is wrong? Now, I believe that it is extremely important for us, for those of us who identify as followers of Christ or Christians, that we should be asking the question, what is God's intent for sexuality? The reason I say that is because we believe that God is the supreme creator of all things. And therefore, that means that everything that exists has a design or a purpose or an intent from his hand in one way or another. So if we seek his will in our job situations, we want to know what he thinks about who we should marry or how we should behave, would it also not make sense for us to figure out how he designed us to interact sexually with other people? And so that's kind of the, the, where we're going to go today. I believe it is so important for us to ask, what is God's intent for sexuality? And when we begin to understand his intent and his design for us as people, just in general, I believe that we can then apply that to our romantic lives and to our sexuality as well. Uh, just a couple disclaimers before we move on today. Uh, I noticed there are a couple of younger guys in the room here. If your parents are uncomfortable with this, uh, this is somewhat of a PG-13. It's not going to get racy, but who knows what anybody feels about it. So you're welcome to have your kids go down to our, our uh, children's class if you would prefer, but they're welcome to stay as well. I also want to say that everything that's being said today uh, is being coming from the perspective, perspective of trying to understand God's point of view regarding sexuality from the Bible, which is what I believe is God's spoken word to us. So at this church, now, there are a lot of different people who come to church here and who have different upbringings. There's a variety of backgrounds. Maybe you come from a Catholic background. Maybe you come from a non-religious family. Perhaps different views of sexuality. And all of that is fine. I just kind of wanted to say for a baseline of where we're starting today is that I believe and I teach from that God's word, the Bible, is God's spoken word to us. It's like a, a roadmap. If you want to know what God is like or who he is and how he relates to us, reading the Bible is how we understand that. So today, as we dig into this topic, what I'm going to say is going to stem from what I believe scripture teaches about this. And growing up I, as a Christian, and some of you maybe have grown up in maybe evangelical type churches or maybe more traditional type churches, you've heard of like Christian sort of abstinence programs that are called like uh, True Love Waits. Anybody ever heard of the True Love Waits program? Things like, um, what's, the new, what's the new one that's out now? the silver ring thing. Um, there's also been like books that are like, I kiss dating goodbye, right? All of these sort of fads that have come up in the Christian realm to help the Christian people grapple with and wrestle with this idea of sexuality. But the problem is, and I have experienced this in my own life, the problem is, is that I believe so many of those programs miss the mark because what they're doing is that they actually teach, they teach young people, or really anybody who's involved, to ignore their natural, emotional, and physical impulses, right? So you're not going to hear me up here saying that anything about that sex is wrong, or that it's bad, or that's unhealthy, or shouldn't be talked about. All of those things I believe God created us for, the problem with those programs is that most often they teach you to ignore or deny those principles or those, those impulses, and they forget to hit at the root of the problem, which is intent. 
And so all of today, everything we're about to say is designed to begin a conversation, okay? That's what I want you to hear above pretty much everything else today, is no matter what I say, all of this is designed to be a conversation starter with everyone in the room, okay? So that's, that's the idea here. So what I'm about to say, I believe, is what Scripture teaches, and if, but if there is something that you don't understand or something you maybe you even disagree with, I invite you to talk to me about it because that's how we do business here in the concept, context of relationships, okay? So that's where we're going to start. So if we're going to ask the question, what is God's intent for sexuality? As I look through scripture, I see three major themes, okay? Three major themes. There are more. There are other things that you could probably list out in a comprehensive, exhaustive way. But I picked three spaces because I'm a pastor, right? Pastors like threes, so we do everything in threes. So I picked three major intents for God's intent for sexuality. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go through those and then we're going to kind of apply it to our lives and our situation. So if you find yourself in here like, well, I'm like not anywhere near that, that, that world, uh, that's okay. It's going to apply to you. If you're married, maybe you're not married. It, okay, all of this is going to apply at one point. So track with me. So the first intent for sexuality is pretty obvious. It's called procreation, right? So procreation, how do I know that? If you have your Bibles, would you open up to Genesis chapter 1? So right in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, it's a book thing that, you know, most some people don't know what they look like. I have it on my iPad or on your phone. Get the Bible app from version in the iTunes store or the Google Play store, and uh, it's also going to be up here on the screen. So Genesis chapter 1, Verse 27 to 28, how do we know procreation is one of God's intent? Well, it says, so God created human beings in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them. What that means is that every single human being who lives on this earth has the fingerprint of God on their life. It means that every one of you represents a piece of who God is, a quality, an aspect of who he is. That means you have incredible, inherent value. And then it says, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, this is the key. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, this comes from the story of Adam and Eve, very famous story where God creates the world and what you believe about that particular, if it's literal or figurative or metaphorical or, or any of those types, that's not the conversation for today. The topic, what we're seeing here is that God was involved in the beginning of creation of all people, and then he commands them immediately to be fruitful and multiply. So that's what procreation means. Now, this is pretty obvious. This is utilitarian. This is functional, right? For a race to continue, for lineage to happen, for more people to exist, you have to procreate. Now, what's interesting to me is that this is not simply reproduction. Procreation is an active thing. It's an intentional thing. It's proactive creation. It's the idea of it wasn't an accident. Whoops. Like, oh, man, there's a baby now. Like, this is an intent that God says, be fruitful and multiply. Like, I'm telling you, this is what I want you as human beings to be doing, is to have more of yourselves, okay? So procreation is one intent. Now, this is what I love about this, is that in sexuality, we get to participate. Pause. Participate, which is great, right? But secondly, we get to participate in the divine process of creation. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but think about that for a second. God is a creator. That's what he does. He, every time he touches something, something new happens. Something good happens. It explodes into reality. He creates things. And when we as human beings engage in sexuality, in the reproduction, the procreation world, we actually get to participate in the divine action of that creation. It's a beautiful thing. It's incredible that God has said first that every human being has the fingerprint of him on them. 
So now, so now it's, he's telling us, is that, yeah, you're not me, but I've created you. You're beautiful. I love you. And now I want you to take parts of me and I want you to spread it around the world. That's beautiful. We get to participate with God in sexuality. That's wonderful. So the last thing I want to say about procreation is that it's that God blessed them. He said it was good. So before we move on with anything else, like I had mentioned earlier, I don't know where you stand with your background. Some of you might be in the room and you might be uncomfortable. You're like, I don't really want to talk about sex at church, right? But here's the thing, is that right in the beginning, God said, it's good. He said, be fruitful. He didn't say, like, just go to some private place, hide, don't ever talk to each other, make sure the lights are off, do your thing, and then don't talk about it again. What he said was, be fruitful and multiply. And over and over again in the creation account, he says, and God saw that it was good. It was good. He blessed them. He said, do this. Enjoy it. So this is a good thing, okay? God's intent is for procreation, but it's also for for goodness. Now, the second thing, the second intent of God's for sexuality is intimacy. Intimacy. And this is where it's going to get a little bit more, a little bit more, uh, I don't know what the word would be, saucy, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> so we got a couple of scriptures, passages of scripture. So this is what separates us from animals, okay, as human beings, is that God didn't just say, I want you to make more of yourselves by, by having sexuality or sex with other, with other people so that you can have offspring. What he actually said was, I want you to, to have an intimate relationship and a connection with another person, okay? And so here's where this comes from, Genesis chapter 2. So the very next chapter we see in verses 24 and 25, this is another famous passage. It says, this explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. So that sounds like things are coming together, not getting further apart, right? And it says, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. When's the last time you were naked in front of somebody and weren't embarrassed about your body? right? So the concept that we see here is that there is an intimacy between the man and the woman in this account. And so God creates them and says, multiply, but then there's also a space of, of comfortability, now, Song of Solomon, okay? Now, this is where it's going to get real fun. So in the book of Song of Solomon, it's sometimes called Song of Songs, okay? It's later on in the Old Testament. This is literally a poem, a love story between a man and a woman who are so hot for each other that they're constantly thinking about being with each other all day long. And they talk about it. And it's this beautiful story. If you have ever been in love, if you've ever been in love, particularly I'm talking to married folks here, you know what I'm talking about. There's this, this desire to be close and to be intimate sexually with that person, right? Now, this is what's cool about this is that I love that this is in the Bible because it's not like, okay, we know about God and he created everything, but he says nothing about sex. No, no, the God of the universe, the one who creates us, the one who saves us, the one who gives us life and freedom and hope also has an entire book of the Bible dedicated to the pleasures and the goodness of sexuality. So, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 13. This is where the 13th verse, it says, My lover is like a sachet of myrrh lying between my breasts. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 3. Like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover among other young men. I sit in his delightful shade, and I taste his delicious fruit. God's intent includes intimacy. That's the beautiful thing about it is that God is not a machine and he did not create us to be machines either. It's not just an act and we're not just supposed to pump out offspring. In fact, the Hebrew word for, for sex in the Bible is a word called yada, okay? Yada. 
Now, you've heard this before. You've ever heard anyone go yada, yada, yada. Anybody ever heard that before? Okay, so why is that? Because the word means to know, to know. So most often it would say, and Adam knew his wife, or so-and-so knew this person. But it's also used in other, other situations, like when I meet a friend. So it would say, so me and my brother would be like, and Jared knew Chris, okay? So it's not just sexually. So, but the key here is that the word means to know, but not just in your head. The word actually means to experience something, to have a deep, intimate connection with that thing so that you don't just talk about it, but you know it, you understand it, you experience it. Does that make sense? So when we see the word yada throughout scripture, what we're talking about is intimacy is about knowing someone deeply. It's about a deep connection. Now, we look at those three verses. The first one said that they were naked. And they felt no shame. That tells me that intimacy brings comfort. It brings closeness and an openness to each other. When you have intimacy with that significant other, with that person, you you are comfortable with them. And the second part of it, the next verse, said that they were a it was a sachet or a pouch of myrrh close to her chest, right? Do you know what myrrh is? Myrrh is a spice of soothing a spice of like medicine or of healing. In fact, the, the wise men, one of them gave Jesus myrrh when, as a gift when he was a baby. But did you know that when Jesus was dying on the cross, that they put wine and he dipped it in vinegar with myrrh in it because the myrrh would have been a painkiller for Jesus on the cross, okay? So when it says that my lover is a, it's like a sachet or a pouch of myrrh close to my chest, what it's saying is, is that there's a soothingness that comes from the intimacy in that relationship. Do you understand? This is from God's word here, guys. He's not just saying, like, be a machine and pump out babies. He's saying, find the person and that you can have a close, intimate bond and connection with. It brings safety and it brings soothing. And then the last one was interesting because it talks about a tree. It says, my lover is like the finest tree in an orchard, and I choose him. And it says, and then I sit in his shade and I enjoy his delightful fruit, right? So what it's saying is there are all sorts of trees in this orchard, but that's the one that I want. One. There's an intimacy there. I choose him. He's the finest tree in the orchard. I rest under it. Intimacy brings closeness. It brings comfort. It brings soothing and safety. It brings rest. And it means being present in that person's life. Intimacy. So God not only has an intent for procreation and for continuing of the human race through sexuality, but he also wants us to have intimacy in it. And the third one, which is probably most people's favorite, is physical pleasure. The reality is, is that it feels good. Sex is great, right? Because we are wired literally to feel and enjoy it. In fact, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2, right? So verse 1's like, hey, I'm writing a book. Verse 2 is this. Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. That doesn't sound like someone to me who's just trying to pump out a bunch of little baby rabbits, right? This is someone who genuinely enjoys the physical touch of her lover, someone who enjoys it and understands the pleasure of it. Did you know that human beings are virtually the only creatures on earth that actually continue in sexuality after the reproductive cycle? Now, there are several. There are a few other species that do, but the vast majority of animals and creatures on this planet, once the reproductive cycle is over for its period of time, there is no sexual activity taking place in any kind. But human beings, on the other hand, are always looking for more of it. They desire it. They crave it. They enjoy it. Why is that? 
It's because we are wired to experience, to enjoy, and desire the physical pleasures of sex. The entire book of Song of Solomon is about a deep intimacy. It doesn't even mention procreation at all, actually. It talks about a love, a deep, intimate love between a man and a woman and how they desire each other physically. And several of those passages are not just intimate, but are actually physical. They're talking about the enjoyment that comes with it. If you have ever kissed a girl or kissed a boy, even at younger ages as a teenager, you know what I'm talking about, that feeling of, oh, that was good right? That excitement that bubbles up in you. You know what I'm talking about. And the Bible affirms that. I want you to know that. The Bible affirms the physical pleasure of sexuality. He says it's positive and it's good. So here's the thing, is that we see God's intent, and it does include other things, but these are the three main pieces that I felt were important for us today. That the intent that God has for sexuality is for, is for procreation, obviously. That's kind of the, the function but then it's also for intimacy and for us to enjoy ourselves physically. But the reality is, is that if we really want to know what God's intent is, God's intent for it, for sex, is for it to be experienced within the context of the marriage relationship. And you can be like, whoa, now back up, Jared. Okay, so everything up to this point, some of you perhaps might have been in the room and said, man, I, I like all of what you're saying. Like, I could have kids one day. You know, you're like, that's great. I want to be intimate with someone, and I certainly like the pleasure of it. But I don't, I don't know if I agree with you about this whole, like, sex thing and it has to be in marriage. Let me just, just track with me, okay? Remember at the very beginning of this, what I said was I believe this is what Scripture teaches. So the next question would be, okay, well, tell me a Scripture in the Bible that actually says that you shouldn't have sex with anyone unless you're married. Okay, here we go, right? So just follow along with me. All throughout Scripture, we see marriage affirmed over and over and over and over again. It's always talking about a man and a woman, being with one person, connecting with one person, committing to one person. And every time there's sexuality in that space, it's always positive and it's affirmed, okay? In fact, it was right from the beginning. We already read this scripture, Genesis 2.24. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. It didn't just say to a random stranger, it said to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, we're not getting into the literal texts of, and historical context of what does it mean for a wife, okay? What we're really talking about here, let's just zero in to the committed relationship of a man and a woman before God, okay? That's the idea, is that we have committed to a lifelong relationship with each other monogamously before God, okay? That's what we're talking about. So whether you do it the justice of the peace, or you believe that maybe the two of you can do that in the woods somewhere by yourselves, we're not getting into theology of that. We're talking about the concept of before God, this is the person I'm choosing to spend my life with, okay? That's what we're talking about, all right? We can have lots of other discussions about this later. So we also see all throughout Scripture that sex is condemned or it has negative consequences whenever it's not contained within the marriage space. Here's a great example of this is that Abraham... And, and his wife, Sarah, couldn't have kids. So he goes to his mistress, who, who was technically legally belonged to him, but was not his wife, per se. It was more in the culture of having, like, concubines and those types of things. And this was not pleasing to God. Like, it was okay, and God is a restorer and a redeemer, and I am so glad for that, because probably several of us in this room are already like, crap, like, I've had sex and I'm not married or whatever. And you might be thinking, I'm in deep crap right now. The reality is, is that God is never done with anybody. 
And that's awesome, okay? So, so here's the thing. We also see all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, so it's not even just the Old Testament. So, so often people would go, yeah, but that's Old Testament laws, right? That's Old Testament rules that, you know, we don't follow half of those anymore. In the New Testament, marriage and sexuality is always contained within those two spaces, okay? It is never separate, ever. So while I can't point to you and say there's this literal scripture that says thou shalt not have sex unless you're married, the reality is that everywhere in scripture it affirms marriage and sexuality in it, and everywhere outside of that it's always either condemned or it has negative consequences and God is not in it, okay? And now everything else we do in scripture that follows that same pattern we agree to. So we have to be consistent with how we view God's word. Now, why is this important? Why did God intend sex to be experienced in marriage, okay? Follow with me. There is a passage that I found in an article that I read this week that I thought was incredible, and I want to read it to you. This is what it says. It says, sex is meant to be a physical representation of an emotional reality, the opportunity to know someone physically as well as intellectually. In the act of sex, we are not only physically naked and vulnerable, but we're emotionally naked and vulnerable too. This dual vulnerability can only fully exist under the covenant of marriage. The covenant is a witnessed promise, an agreement between a husband and a wife witnessed by God. This promise is immune to changing times, attitudes, and circumstances. This means that regardless of what happens, the words, for better or worse, that you are bound together. Whatever we learn about our partners, whatever we discover, We are bound to love them, and they you. This is drastically different from merely cohabitating or experiencing sex purely for pleasure. Absent the covenant of marriage, it is very difficult to truly know your partner. Both of you are always tempted to hold something back, fearful that if they really got to know the real you, they might leave you or that you might leave them. This kind of relationship is inherently imbalanced. You can be physically naked, but emotionally you hold back, fearful of losing someone whose only real tie to you is mutual affection. And if the affection fades or the circumstances change, what is it to call you both to remain? I thought that was incredibly powerful because it's true. Someone in the room might say, but I have found the one that I love. I have committed to that person. And I would say to you, according to this passage that I just read, because I think it's a powerful argument, is that there is always something there that will be a limiting factor for you in a relationship until you make that decision to say, I am committed to you. I am binding myself to you permanently. Now, you may disagree with me, but that is where I'm coming from. And I believe why God affirms marriage over and over and over again. It's not about the letter of the law as to whether or not I can sleep with the person I am deeply in love with. The reality is is that you have no evidence or, or even proof that that person is going to be with you forever because you haven't committed to that. Do you understand? That's the point. And so the big idea of today is that the covenant of marriage is equipped to facilitate the benefits of sex, but it simultaneously protects us from its dangers. What do I mean by that? And we're going to wrap up here. We only have a few minutes left. Human sexuality is so physically, emotionally, and spiritually complex that God intends it to be experienced only within the bounds, the protective bounds of marriage. So why do I say that? 
Because I believe that he knows that we get ourselves into so much trouble when we don't, okay? He knows the power that it holds over us. What do I mean by that? So if we look at our three intents, right? One was, was procreation. If we decide, and this is not, not a stamp on whether or not you have to have kids or not, okay? We're talking about people who just want to have sex and they are just disregarding the concept of the procreative process. When you do that, what are unintended consequences? We get unwanted babies, right? We have to deal with abortions. We have orphanages that are filled with children all over the world because because parents are more interested in having sex but not considering God's intent for procreation, right? We see uh, neglected children in homes of parents who don't even want kids but are like trapped to have them. And so we see homes filled with babies and children who are stuck in their diapers and held in cages. These are not God's intent for sexuality or for children, but it happens because we go outside of God's intent for procreation, okay? Secondly, what happens when we say, I just want to have sex, I don't want about intimacy, what happens then? When we're just having sex with people, we see heartbreak, we see emptiness, because when you move on from one partner to the next, you can sometimes feel used. Anybody in the room, I mean, you don't even have to raise your hand, you know what I'm talking about. If you've engaged in this, and I have, I know what it's like to feel empty and used, I know what it's like to feel that way. And it even leads to assault. It leads to rape. It leads to all sorts of... When all I want is your body, what happens is, is that I choose... Sometimes people choose to go so far as to take it without, without permission. What about, what about pleasure? We know that God's intent is for physical pleasure, but when I ignore intimacy, when I ignore the bounds of marriage and procreation, when we see pleasure, all we get then is we find pornography is prevalent and rampant. We see people becoming objects. We see people having multiple partners with each other. And, we, and even in other cases, we see diseases that are rampant across our nation and our world. All of these things are unintended consequences of sexuality. And it happens when you are outside the protective shell of a marriage relationship. But when you focus on procreation and you focus on intimacy and physical pleasure under the bounds of what God created to be used for, it's wonderful and awesome and protected. So, man, I'm hitting hard today. So practically speaking, where does this leave us? How do we apply this to our lives? If you're dating, if you're in a dating relationship, if you are in a cohabitation situation even presently, maybe you're living with, a, with your, your fiancé or your boyfriend or girlfriend, Here's what I would say to you. The search for and the process of getting to know the person you want to be bound to should be done before committing to it. All of this that we're talking about here, dating, the whole concept is, is that you need to get to know this person before you engage in these activities because of all the things we talked about a few minutes ago. You want to build closeness. You want to cultivate intimacy. You want to begin the road of emotional intimacy and knowing each other and spending time with each other and learning you can trust them and going through those habits of, of, of lifestyle habits and things. Dating or the relationship is very important, but we cannot sidetrack it before we get married. And the excerpt from that earlier, it says, cohabitation is dangerous because without marriage commitment, there's always the subconscious limitation and holding back, I believe it with all my heart. I have seen it happen. Yes, it's possible for you to live with your significant other and then get married. But you know how many people don't? It happens all the time. It happens all the time. And the reason for that is when they tell themselves, and I hear all the time people say, well, we just don't want to put a label on our relationship. But really what that means for most people is this space of, 
yeah, you know what? Because I feel like if I actually do this, if I commit to it and tie the knot, I'm bound to this. I don't know what's going to happen on the road. I can't say that he's never going to cheat on me. I can't say that, like, that she's never going to get old and like, you know, not look the same as she does right now, right? And there's this commitment issue that's really deep-seated inside. That's where I believe most of cohabitation stems from. It's a convenience issue. There are, of course, financial issues and all of those things. So when we ask the question of sex, here's what I would say is that sex in this context of dating or cohabitation is outside of the protective boundaries of marriage, which means it's outside of God's intent. Now, here's what I would say to you. If you find yourself in a space right now where you are dating or you are cohabitating or you're engaged and you're sexually active, what I would say to you is that let's talk, okay? This is not condemnation. This is, let's see what God's word says. Why do I say that to you? Because if you say, I believe in Jesus and I believe God's word is true, then we are obligated to allow that to affect our lives. So let's talk about it. What does that look like? Let's wrestle with those issues, okay? Yeah, but I've got rent. Like, I, we bought a house together. Okay, let's talk about it. Let's figure it out, okay? That's where we're coming from. Number two, marriage. What I would say to you, married people, is enjoy the benefits that marriage creates. Not just physically, but emotionally, be vulnerable with each other. It's incredibly important for you to have that intimacy that God intended it to. Because even if you're married and you have kids, then you have physical pleasure, but you don't have intimacy, you are in danger of your marriage having destructive elements to it. It is important for you to be vulnerable with your spouse. Work to protect against the dangers from the outside. Work on your marriage. Protect your marriage. That means don't spend inordinate amounts of time with people who are not your wife of the opposite sex or your husband, either way, okay? Obviously, you got to work together. Be aware is what I'm saying. Be aware of this. Date your spouse. Go out on dates. Spend time together. Go on vacation together. Get a babysitter so you can be with your spouse. Make sure you are working on your marriage. Work on your relationship so you can enjoy for a lifetime the benefits that God intends. And so I would say, if we ask the question, sex? Well, all the time. Or as often as you'd like. That's the reality of it. But if you find yourself married and you're struggling in any of the areas that I mentioned, let's talk about it. I want to be here for you. I have training, okay, just so you know this. I have a Christian counseling degree, okay? So I'm equipped to walk you through your life, and I've taken uh, various courses to help me. I want to be here for you. If you're in a marriage space and you're struggling, come talk to me because this is a conversation starter. God wants to heal your marriage. He wants it to be healthy. He wants you to enjoy it so that the intent that he has can be filtered into your relationship and you can have wholeness. And if you're struggling with this, come talk to me so we can work through it and God can heal in that space. And finally, I just want to address a little bit about pornography. Things like premarital sex, adultery, these types of nasty sort of things that most of us cringe when we hear them. I believe that the reason that all of these things are wrong is because it destroys the sanctity and the protection that marriage provides. These things erode the walls of protection around our marriages. When I look at pornography, my wife thinks that I don't think she's beautiful. It puts me in a desire to see someone else. It objectifies women or men because women struggle with pornography as well. 
Adultery obviously just crumbles the walls of marriage, right? When you get involved in premarital sex, when you get, have sexuality before you are in the protective bounds, you're giving yourself to other people. And maybe for some of you, it's perhaps multiples. And if you're honest with yourself, you look and you say, wow, like I just feel empty. There are parts of me that are missing. Why? Because somehow God teaches us in his word that there's more than just a physicalness to sexuality, that something mysterious happens and we give ourselves somehow in our innermost being goes to that other person. And if you have done that outside of the protective intended bounds of what God had created, we end up with brokenness and pain and bad habits and wrong ways of thinking and and all of these things. And that's what pornography, that's what sexuality outside of God's intent, that's what adultery does is it shapes and reframes everything. And I thought of it like this. I thought it would be like, it's a tool being used the wrong way and for the wrong reason. It always ends badly. I thought of a campfire. Have you noticed that in fires, we have a ring around them, stone, which cannot be burned up by fire. It's there to protect. But what happens if the flame gets outside? It burns up other things. And this is the image that I'm trying to to help you understand, is that marriage is the stone ring around the fire of God's intent. When we leave spaces open, when we are careless with the walls around it, flames of lust, of passion, of desire, of intimacy, outside of that ring can catch fire and set our worlds ablaze. That is the reality of these things. Now, if you find yourself in any of these places, there is no condemnation for you. I want you to hear this. Talk to me. Let's talk. If you struggle with pornography, talk to me. If you're struggling in your marriage with adultery or some, some kind of infidelity or some struggle, talk to me. If you're with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you're sexually active, come talk to me. We will work through this. It's important to remember the covenant of marriage is equipped to facilitate the benefits of sex and simultaneously protect against its dangers. And so my challenge to you, this is the practical element to you today, is to fight to protect God's intent in whatever stage of life you're in. Whatever stage you're in, if you're dating and you don't even have anybody to even think about being intimate with physically, then you protect it everywhere you go. You protect God's intent for yourself, for your spouse. If you're in conversations with your friends and they're making jokes about it, you protect that. And you're in a marriage, you fight for your marriage. If you're struggling with an addiction or pornography or something like that, you fight for that. You're honest, you get help. And you say, I need help. And you make choices in your life to fight to protect God's intent so that one day you can have the healing and the benefits of it. And right now, maybe you're in a spot where you're saying, all I'm feeling are the dangers and the destruction that it has left in my life. God can heal that. He does. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But you have to fight to protect God's intent in whatever stage of life you're in. Would you stand with me and close your eyes? I don't know where each person in the room is specifically with these thoughts. But I encourage each of you just for a moment, we have just a few brief moments left. I encourage each of you to 
Just open your heart. Can we maybe dim the lights quickly? Just search your heart and open yourself to God. Consider not what Jared said, but allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. I believe that that happens, that when we say, God, I just want to know what is right, what is real, what is true. I hear this guy talking. Some of what he says sounds like it makes sense. Some of it I'm not sure about. I see what the scriptures point to, but I just need, I need it from the source. I believe that God will, will give that to us. So wherever you are, would you just tilt your head to heaven and say, just under your breath or out loud, whatever, just say, God, I just, I, I need you in this space in my life. Speak to me, challenge me, inspire me, help me, heal me, restore me, whatever you need. Cry out to him right now. I believe that our world is being torn apart at the seams. Brokennesses and relationships and in marriages and we see such hurt. The fight about abortion all over the world and our nation and orphanages being filled to the brim. Because we're operating outside of God's intent for our lives. God, would you help each one of us to fight for your intent? Would you commit now to him? Would you just say, God, I will fight for your intent for sexuality in my life. Just in your own space. Now, I want you to identify where you are, whether you're in a dating cohabitation space, whether you're a marriage, married space, where maybe in, a, uh, in any of those other areas of addiction or or pornography, or, or any, any of those spaces. Whatever it is, be honest before God. Be vulnerable with God. Be intimate with God. Allow Him to know you. Open it for Him. That area of your life that's been locked away behind a vault, open it to Him now and say, God, I show this to you. Give it a name. Name it. It is important for you to speak the word of what it is because it has power over you until you do. And you hand it to Him and say, God, I, I need you to take this thing. No one in here is perfect. No one's marriage is perfect. Everyone needs to have some work done. And give it to God now. We ask for you, Father, now to just let your spirit comfort us. Let us know that you are present here in this room, that you are more intimately aware of who we are than any human being could ever possibly know. And so we give our entire being to you so that when the time comes for us to have, have a, a relationship with someone that you have created us for, that we will be prepared and ready to honor your intent for it. Bless us, God. Let us honor what you have given us, this gift that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church Home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.